Section 4 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lewis Heman, Louisville, Kentucky. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 4. The Reorganization of the Empire, by J.S. Reed. Chapter 2. The Reorganization of the Empire It is natural to think of Diocletian as the projector, and of Constantine as the completer, of a new system of government for the Roman Empire, which persisted with mere changes of detail until it was laid in ruins by the barbarians. But in reality, the imperial institutions from the time of Augustus onwards had passed through a course of continuous development. Diocletian did but accelerate processes which had been in operation from the empire's earliest days, and Constantine left much for his successors to accomplish. Still, these two great organizers did so far change the world which they ruled as to be rightly styled the founders of a new type of monarchy. We will first sketch rapidly the most striking aspects of this altered world, and then consider them one by one somewhat more closely. But our survey must be in the main of a general character, and many details, especially when open to doubt, must be passed over. In particular, the minutiae of chronology, which in this region of history are specially difficult to determine, must often be disregarded. The ideal of a balance of power between the princeps and the senate, which Augustus dangled before the eyes of his contemporaries, was never approached in practice. From the first, the imperial constitution bore within it the seed of autocracy, and the plant was not of slow growth. The historian Tacitus was not far wrong when he described Augustus as having drawn to himself all the functions which in the Republic had belonged to the magistrates and to laws. The founder of the empire had studied well the art of concealing his political art, but the pressure of his hand was felt in every corner of the administration. Each princeps was as far above the law as he chose to rise, so long as he did not strain the endurance of the senate and people to the point of breaking. When that point was passed, there was the poor consolation of refusing him his apotheosis, or of branding with infamy his memory. As the possibility of imperial interference was ever present in every section of the vast machine of government, all concerned in its working were anxious to secure themselves by obtaining an order from above. This anxiety is conspicuous in the letters written by Pliny to his master Trajan. Even those emperors who were most citizen-like, civilis, as the phrase went, were carried away by the tide. Tacitus exhibits the Senate as eagerly pressing Tiberius to permit the enlargement of his powers, Tiberius, who regarded every precept of Augustus as a law for himself. The so-called Lex Regia Vespasiani, shows how constantly the admitted authority of the emperor advanced by the accumulation of precedents. Pliny gave Trajan credit for having reconciled the empire with liberty, but liberty had come to mean little more than orderly and benevolent administration, free from cruel caprice, with some external deference paid to the senate. Developed custom made the rule of Marcus Aurelius greatly more despotic than that of Augustus. Even the emperors of the 3rd century who, like Severus Alexander, made most of the Senate, could not turn back the current. 
It was long, however, before the subjects of the empire realized that the ancient glory had departed. Down to the time of the Emperor Tacitus, pretenders found their account in posing as senatorial champions, and rulers used the Senate's name as a convenient screen for their crimes. But the natural outcome of the anarchy of the 3rd century was the unveiled despotism of Diocletian. He was the last in a line of valiant soldiers sprung from Illyrian soil who accomplished the rescue of Rome from the dissolution with which it had been threatened by forces within and by forces without. To him, more than to Aurelian, on whom it was bestowed, belonged by right the title Restorer of the World. For three centuries, the legions had been a standing menace to the very existence of Greco-Roman civilization. They made emperors and unmade them, and devoured the substance of the state, exacting continually lavish largesse at the sword's point. One hope of Diocletian when, following in the steps of Aurelian, he hedged round the throne with pomp and majesty, was that a new awe might shield the civil power from the lawless soldiery. In place of an Augustus, loving to parade as a bourgeois leader of the people, there comes a kind of sultan, with trappings such as the men of the West had been used to associate with the servile East, with the Persians and the Parthians. The ruler of the Roman world wears the oriental diadem, the mere dread of which had brought Caesar to his end. He is approached as a living god with that adoration from which the souls of the Greeks revolted when they came into the presence of the great king, though Alexander bent them to endure it. Eunuchs are among his greatest officers. Lawyers buttress his throne with an absolutist theory of the constitution which is universally accepted. From Augustus to Diocletian, the trend of the government towards centralization had been incessant. The new monarchy gave to the centralization an intensity and an elaboration unknown before. In the early days of conquest, whether within Italy or beyond its boundaries, the Roman power had attempted no unification of its dominions. As rulers, the Romans had shown themselves thorough opportunists. They tolerated great varieties of local privilege and partial liberty. Their government had followed, almost timidly, the line of least resistance, and had adapted itself to circumstance, to usage, and to prejudice in every part of the empire. Even taxation had been elastic. Before the age of despotism, few matters had ever been regulated by one unvarying enactment for every province. To this great policy, the Romans chiefly owed the rapidity of their successes and the security of their ascendancy. The tendency towards unity was, of course, manifest from the first but it sprang far less from the direct action of the central government than from the instinctive and unparalleled attraction which the Roman institutions possessed for the provincials, particularly in the West. In part by the extension of Roman and Italian rights to the provinces, in part by the gradual depression of Italy to the level of a province, and in part by interference designed to correct misgovernment, local differences were to a great extent effaced. Septimius Severus, by stationing a legion in Italy, removed one chief distinction between that favored land and the subject regions outside. Under his successor, Caracalla, all communities within the empire became alike Roman. By Diocletian and by Constantine, control from the center was made systematic and organic. 
yet absolute uniformity was not attained. In taxation, in legal administration, and in some other departments of government, local conditions still induced some toleration of diversities. Centralization brought into existence with its growth a vast bureaucracy. The organization of the imperial side of the administration, as opposed to the senatorial, became more and more complex, while the importance of the Senate in the administrative machinery continually lessened. The expansion and organization of the executive engaged the attention of many emperors, particularly Claudius, Vespasian, Trajan, Hadrian, and Septimius Severus. When the chaos of the third century had been overcome, Diocletian and his successors were compelled to reconstruct the whole service of the empire and a great network of officials, bearing for the most part new titles and largely undertaking new functions, was spread over it. Along with the development of absolutism and the extension of bureaucracy and the unification of administration, had gone certain tendencies which had cut deeply into the constitution of society at large. The boundaries between class and class tended more and more to become fixed and impassable. As the empire decayed, society stiffened, and some approximations were made to the oriental institution of caste. Augustus had tried to give a rigid organization to the circle from which senators were drawn, and had constituted it as an order of nobility passing down from father to son, only to be slowly recruited by imperial choice. Many duties owed to the state tended to become hereditary, and it was made difficult for men to rid themselves of the status which they acquired at birth. The exigencies of finance made membership of the local senates and the municipalities almost impossible to escape. The frontier legions, partly by encouragement and partly by ordinance, were largely filled with sons of the camp. Several causes, the chief of which was the financial system, gave rise to a kind of serfdom, colonatus, which at first attached the cultivators of the soil, and as time went on, approximated to a condition of actual slavery. The provisioning of the great capitals Rome and Constantinople, and the transportation of goods on public account, rendered occupations connected with them hereditary, and many inequalities between classes became pronounced. The criminal law placed the honestiores and the tenuiores in different categories. The main features of the executive government, as organized by Diocletian and his successors, must now be briefly described. For the first time, the difference between the prevalently Latin West and the prevalently Greek East was clearly reflected in the scheme of administration. Diocletian ordained, 286, that two Augusti with equal authority should share the supreme power, one making his residence in the eastern, the other in the western portion. The empire was not formally divided between them. They were to work together for the benefit of the whole state. This association of Augusti was not exactly new, but it had never been before formalized so completely. The separation of west from east had been foreshadowed from the early days of the empire. In the first century, it had been found necessary to have a Greek secretary of state, Alabellus Graecus, as well as a Latin secretary, Alabellus Latinus. The civilization of the two spheres, in spite of much interaction, 
remained markedly different. The municipal life of the eastern regions in which Greek influence predominated was fixed in its characteristics before the Romans acquired their ascendancy, and the impression they made on it was not on the whole great. But they spread their own municipal institutions all over western lands. Although Diocletian's arrangement of the two Augusti was overthrown by Constantine, the inherent incompatibility between the two sections of the empire continued to assert itself, and the separation became permanent in fact, if not in form, on the death of Theodosius. The establishment of Constantinople as the capital rendered the ultimate severance inevitable. Another problem which Diocletian attacked was that of the succession to the throne. Each Augustus was to have assigned to him, 293, a Caesar, who would assist him in the task of government and succeed him on his retirement or death. The transference of power would thus be peaceful, and the violent revolutions caused by the claims of the legions to nominate emperors would cease. But in the nature of things this device could not prosper. The empire followed the course it had taken from the beginning. The dynastic principle strove time after time to establish itself, but dynasties were ever threatened with catastrophe, such had ensued on the deaths of Nero, of Commodus, and of Severus Alexander. But new emperors frequently did homage to heredity by a process of posthumous and fictitious adoption, whereby they grafted themselves onto the line of their predecessors. Apparently, even this phantom of legitimacy had some value for the effect it produced on the public mind. The theory of government now became, as has been said, frankly autocratic. Even Aurelian, a man of simple and soldierly life, had thought well to take to himself officially the title of Lord and God, which private flattery had bestowed upon Domitian. The lawyers established a fiction that the Roman people had voluntarily resigned all authority into the hands of the monarch. The fable was as baseless and as serviceable as that of the social compact received in the 18th century. No person or class held any rights against the emperor. The revenues were his private property. All payments from the treasury were sacred largesses conceded by the divine ruler. So far as the state was concerned, the distinction between the senatorial exchequer, aurarium, and the imperial exchequer, fiscus, disappeared. Certain revenues, as for instance those derived from the confiscated estates of unsuccessful pretenders, were labeled as the emperor's private property, res privita, and others as belonging to his family estate, patrimonium. But these designations were merely formal and administrative. The emperor was the sole ultimate source of all law and authority. The personnel by which he was immediately surrounded in his capital was of vast extent, and the palace was often a hotbed of intrigue. Even in the time of the Severi, the Caesareans, as Dio Cassius names them, were numerous enough to imperil often the public peace. Another class of imperial servants, the workers at the Mint, had, in the reign of Aurelian, raised an insurrection which led to a shedding of blood in Rome such as had not been witnessed since the age of Sulla. The military basis of imperial power, partly concealed by the earlier emperors, stood fully revealed. Septimius Severus had been the first to wear regularly in the capital the full insignia of military command, previously seen there only on days of triumph. 
Now, every department of the public service was regarded as militia and camp. Castra is the official name for the court. All high officers, with the exception of the Praefectus Urbi, wore the military garb. It is needless to say that officials who are nominally the emperor's domestic servants easily gathered power into their own hands and often became the real rulers of the empire. The line between domestic offices and those which were political and military was never strictly drawn. All higher functions whose exercise required close attention on the emperor's person were covered by the description dignitatis palatinae. Under the early emperors, the great ministers of state were largely freedmen, whose status was rather that of court servants than of public administrators. The great departments of imperial service were gradually freed from their close attachment to the emperor's person. The natural result was that direct personal influence over the ruler often passed into the hands of men whose duties were in name connected only with the daily life of the palace. From the 3rd century onwards, the eastern custom of choosing eunuchs as the most trusted servants prevailed in the imperial household as in the private households of the wealthy. The greatest of these was the Prepositus Sacri Cubiculi, or Great Chamberlain. This officer often wielded the power which had been enjoyed by such men as Parthenius had been under Domitian. The office grew in importance as measured by dignity and precedence, until in the time of Theodosius the Great it was one of the four high offices which conferred on their holders membership of the imperial council, consistorium, and a little later was made equal in honor to the other three. The Palatine servants, high and low, formed a mighty host, which required a special department for their provisioning and another for their tendance in sickness. But exactly how many of them were under the immediate direction, sub dispositione, of the Prepositus Sacri Cubiculi cannot be determined. Some duties fell to him which are hardly suggested by his title. He was in control of the emperor's select and intimate bodyguard, which bore the name of Silentiari, thirty in number, with three decuriones for officers. Curiously, he superintended one division of the vast imperial domains, that considerable portion of them which lay within the province of Cappadocia. Dependent probably on the Prepositus Sacri Cubiculi was the Primicerus Sacri Cubiculi, who appears in the Notitia Dignitatum as possessing the quality of a proconsular. Whether the Castrensis Sacri Palitae was independent or subordinate cannot be determined. Under his rule were a host of pages and lower menials of many kinds, and he had to care for the fabric of the imperial palaces. Also, he had charge of the private archives of the imperial family. The service of the officers described was rather personal to the emperor rather than public in character. We now turn to the civil and military administration as it was refashioned under the new monarchy. The chaos of the period preceding Diocletian's supremacy had finally effaced some of the leading features of the Augustan Principate, which had become fainter and fainter as the empire ran its course. The Senate lost the last remnant of real power. Such of its surviving privileges and dignities as might carry back the mind to the days of its glory were mere shadows without substance. All provinces had become imperial. All functionaries of every class owed obedience to the autocrat alone and looked to him 
for their career. The old state treasury, the Aurarium, retained its name, but became in practice the municipal exchequer of Rome, which ceased to be the capital of the empire and was merely the first of its municipalities. The army and the civil service alike were filled with officers whose titles and duties would have seemed strange to a Roman of the second century of the empire. The aspect of the provincial government, as ordered by the new monarchy, differed profoundly from that which it had worn in the age of the early Principate. To diminish the danger of military revolutions, Diocletian carried to a conclusion a policy which had been adopted, in part, by his predecessors. The great military commands in the provinces, which had often enabled their holders to destroy or to imperil dynasties or rulers, were broken up and the old provinces were severed into fragments. Spain, for example, now comprised six divisions, and Gaul, fifteen. Within these fragments, still named provinces, the civil power and the military authority were, as a rule, not placed in the same hands. The divisions of the empire now numbered about a hundred and twenty, as against forty-five which existed at the end of Trajan's reign. Twelve of the new sections lay within the boundaries of Italy, and of the old contrast between Italy and the provinces of the Principate, few traces remained. Egypt, hitherto treated as a land apart, was brought within the new organization. The titles of the civil administrators were various. Three, who ruled regions bearing the ancient provincial names of Asia, Africa, and Achaea, were distinguished by the title of proconsul which had once belonged to all administrators of senatorial provinces. About 36 were known as consulares. This designation ceased to indicate, as of old, the men who had passed the consulship. It was merely connected with the government of the provinces. The consularis became technically a member of the Roman Senate, though he ranked below the ex-consul. So also with the provincial governors who bore the common title of praeses, and the rarer name of corrector. This last appellation belonged, in the 4th century, to the chiefs of two districts in Italy, Apulia, and Lucania, and of three outside. It denoted originally officers who began to be appointed in Trajan's reign to reform the condition of municipalities. The precedence of the correctores among the governors seems to have placed them in the west after the consulares, in the east after the Presides. Sometimes the title of proconsul was for personal reasons bestowed on a governor whose province was ordinarily ruled by an officer of lower dignity, but such an arrangement was temporary. The old expressions legatus pro praetore or procurator in its application to provincial rulers went out of use. After the age of Constantine, new and fanciful descriptions of the provincial governors as of other officers, tended to spring into existence. A few frontier districts were treated, as was the case under the Principate, in an exceptional manner. Their chiefs were allowed to exercise civil as well as military functions, and were naturally described by the ordinary name for an army commander, Dux. The proconsuls possessed some privileges of their own. Two of them, the proconsul of Africa and the proconsul of Asia, were alone among provincial governors entitled to receive their orders from the emperor himself. And the Asian proconsul was distinguished by having under him two deputies, 
who directed a region known as Hellespontus and the Insulae, or islands lying near the Asiatic coast. All other administrators communicated with the emperor through one or other of four great officers of state, the Praefecti Praetorio. Their title had been originally invented to designate the commander of the Praetorian cohorts, whom Augustus called into existence. The control of these was usually vested in two men. Now and then, three commanders were appointed. Some emperors, disregarding the danger to themselves, allowed a single officer to hold command. Men like Sejanus, under Tiberius, and Plotianus, under Septimius Severus, were practically vice-emperors. As time went on, the office gradually lost its military character. Sometimes one of the commanders was a soldier and the other a civilian. During the reign of Severus Alexander, the great lawyer Ulpian was in sole charge, being the first senator who had been permitted to hold the post. The legal duties of the prefect continued to grow in importance. When the Praetorian cohorts brought destruction on themselves by their support of Maxentius against Constantine, the Praefectus Praetorio became a purely civil functionary. The four Praefecti were distinguished as Praefectus Praetorio, Galliarum, Italiae, Illyrici, and Orientis, respectively. The first administered not only the ancient Gaul, but also the Rhine frontier in Britain, Spain, Sardinia, Corsica, and Sicily. The second, in addition to Italy, had under him Raetia, Noricum, Dalmatia, Pannonia, and some regions on the upper Danube, also most of Roman Africa. The third, Dacia, Achaea, and districts near the lower Danube besides Illyricum, properly so called. The fourth, all Asia Minor, insofar as it was not subjected to the proconsul of Asia, with Danube and Thrace, and some lands by the mouth of the Danube. It will be seen that three out of four had the direction of provinces lying on or near the Danube. Probably on their first institution, and for some time afterwards, all the prefecti retained in their own hands the administration of some portions of the great territories committed to their charge. Later, the Illyrian prefect alone had a district, a portion of Dacia, under his own immediate control. Apart from this exception, the prefecti conducted their government through officials subordinated to them. Each prefectal region was divided into great section called dioceses. Each of these was formed by combination of a certain number of provinces, and each was comparable to the more important of the old provinces of the age of the Republic and early Principate. The word diocesis had passed through a long history before the time of Diocletian. The Romans found it existent in their Asiatic dominions, where it had been applied by earlier rulers to an administrative district, especially in relation to legal affairs. The Roman government extended the employment of the term both in the East and in the West, and connected it with other sides of administration besides the legal. Diocletian marked out ten great divisions of the empire to be designated by this title. The numbers of the divisions and their limits were somewhat altered by his successors. At the head of each diocese was placed an officer who bore the name Vicarius, excepting in the eastern prefecture. Here, the Vicarius was after a while replaced by a Comus Orientis, to whom the governor of Egypt was the first subject, though he acquired independent authority later.
The treatment of Italy, in the new and extended sense, was peculiar. It constituted a single diocese, but possessed two vicari, one of whom had his seat in Milan, the other in Rome. This bisection of the Italian prefecture depended on differences in taxation, to which we must recur later. In the diocese Asiana and the diocese Africae, the vicarius was of course responsible not to the prefectus but to the proconsul. Such were, in broad outline, the features which the civil administration of the empire wore after Diocletian's reforms. End of section four.